This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, my name is Dean Nawalny. I'm the chairman of the Halftime Institute, and I had the pleasure of being on Dr. Karen's show today. Here's a few nuggets that uh, you're going to hear. One is, you matter. What you do every day is a ministry. It's important for all of us to surrender to what God wants to do through us. And leadership, the attributes of leadership are critically important, like integrity and trust. And I'll share a little bit about that also. My guest today shares my passion for resourcing marketplace leaders with the tools needed to continue a life of significance, serving both God and people. My guest today is Dean Nuolny, Chairman of the Board and Ambassador of Halftime Institute. He spent 23 years in executive roles with three of Wall Street's largest financial firms. He finished his career in the financial sector as a market manager for Wells Fargo Advisors in Chicago, where he oversaw a $100 million market. While in Chicago, he and his wife, Lisa, traveled many times to Africa. Seeing the abject needs of widows and orphans, they made life changes that enabled them to get involved such as helping to complete an orphan home and a hospice home in Durban, South Africa. In 2010, Dean left his marketplace career to help more people who, like him, wanted to expand their own first-half success and skills into passion and purpose for meeting human needs and making a significant difference. Dean joined the Halftime Institute as Managing Director and in 2011 became Chief Executive Officer. In 2021, after 11 years of faithful service, Dean stepped into the role of Chairman of the Board and Halftime Ambassador. He speaks at events around the world, encouraging business leaders to channel first-half achievement into a second-half defined by joy, impact, and balance. In 2017, Dean authored his first book, Trade Up, How to Go from Just Making Money to Making a Difference. In it, Dean shares candidly about his own personal transition into a second half of meaning and significance, and also what the Halftime Institute has learned in over 20 years of helping marketplace leaders do the same. So, Dean, welcome to the show today. I am so happy to have you on The Voice of Leadership and also Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Dr. Karen, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to hear more about your personal journey and also about your organization. And so let's start with halftime. A lot of people may not have heard that organization before. They may not know what it is. I've been following halftime for a long time, so I'm excited about your organization. What is Halftime? For somebody who hasn't heard about it, how would you describe the organization? Yeah, I'll give a little background first. Uh, Bob Buford uh, wrote a book called Halftime. He was mentored by a gentleman named Peter Drucker. And he got to this point in his life where he thought there has to be more to life than this. And Bob had all this success, uh, but he wanted to have significance also. So Peter suggested, why don't you write a book about going from success to significance? Peter, he said, what, what should I call the book? He said, well, what, you like football, call it Halftime. So Halftime was birthed out of a book in 1995. And what ended up happening is Bob wrote the book on his own life. Folks started to call him regarding that book. He had no intention of that happening. But folks just started calling him saying, I feel the same. I feel this inkling. I feel this swelling in my heart that I want to go make a difference and live a life of significance. So the Halftime Institute was birthed back in 1998. And what we really do is we help individuals go from success to significance. We like to say is we help folks find their Ephesians 2.10 calling, 
For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand. And then we help them engage in those callings. That's phenomenal. I remember many years ago meeting Bob Buford several times at different <laughs> Christian conferences where he was speaking and when he first wrote the book and when it first came out. And that's how I first became aware of the Halftime Institute as he was then traveling around and telling people about it. And I said, oh, that's really exciting because I was always interested in marketplace leadership. And so anybody who was working with marketplace leaders to think about the second half of their lives, that was always exciting to me. So I'm really delighted that you are also involved in it now too. So tell me, as the chairman of the board, you are now going through the halftime program yourself, and it's kind of good to sample our own wares, if you will. So tell us a little bit about your experience in going through the halftime process, and also how has halftime changed your life? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, as I made this transition from the chairman or from the CEO role to the chairman role, uh, I would, the, the two new leaders came to me and said, hey, you've done so much for us. Would you be interested in going through the fellows program, the halftime fellows program? And I'm thinking, go through the halftime fellows program. I've been here 11 years. Why do I need that program? And then I started to think through it a little bit. And I thought there is no better program in the world to figure out what God wants to do through me in the next season of life. So I began in the fellows cohort in August of this past year, which has been absolutely fantastic. Very first cohort call, same question. The group said, we just got to ask, Dean, what are you doing in the group? You've been here for 11 years. Why are you in this cohort? And I said, well, can you think of a better place to be? A better organization to do this? And they said, well, if you're in, we're in. So uh, I love going through the fellows uh, cohort and going through halftime myself. Again, it's the second time I've gone through halftime. Um, halftime has completely changed my life. I went to the halftime uh, organization in 2008 for the first time uh, and just went there with this idea that I had what I thought was going to be the rest of my life planned. And it was my idea. And at that point, my faith wasn't where it needed to be. And when I went through halftime at the very beginning, Bob said, Bob Buford said three things that I'll never forget. He talked about Ephesians 2.10, which I mentioned earlier. But he said two other things that, uh, that just really struck me. He said, Dean, it's not going from success to significance. It's going from success to significance to surrender. And as a type A business man, I was like, surrender? What's that even mean? I, mean, I don't want to surrender to anything. And so I learned how to surrender. And that was, that was really a game changer for me. And then he said, there's going to be an audit at the end of your life. And uh, Bob was brilliant, but simple. He said, there's going to be two questions. What did you do with Jesus? And I felt really good about that. What did you do with the gifts I've given you? And I didn't feel good about that. So at that point, I was all focused on myself. Is how can I become more successful? How can I make more money? How can I have more toys? Because that's going to bring me happiness, I'm sure. And I realized at that point that really serving others and making a difference in others' lives is what's most important. Yeah, that's really powerful. It's funny that you were talking about surrender. Last night, I happened to be listening to an old song, and I was playing different versions of it over and over again because um, mm -hmm. I'm sort of head of the prayer ministry and it's what God was giving me for the prayer ministry for this week. And the song was, I surrender all. <laughs> so, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Fantastic song. It is a fantastic yeah. song. It's an old one, but it's still relevant. And thinking about the beginning of this early part of the year that we're in, and also thinking about what God is calling us to it does require a sense of surrender. It requires, you know, being quiet and, and in front of him and hearing what he has to say about how you use, you know, the marvelous gifts that he's given you. So that's quite a journey. I love the fact that you're going back through the program, which says again, people say, oh, I read the Bible once, don't need to read that again. However, in different seasons, that same, it's never the same, you know, it's that's right. a little different. I was just going to comment, the idea of surrender for most folks, including myself, is scary. What does that really mean? 
But at the end of the day, if, if we're really able to surrender, and this took me a long time to get to that point, it's not scary. It's actually more relieving. It's refreshing. It's understanding that God's really in control of my life. I don't control it anyway. So I might as well surrender. So yeah, surrender. It was quite shocking when he said, we'll surrender your life. But I ultimately got there, I think. You know, what's also powerful too, Dean, about what you said is that, you know, God is more equipped to lead and guide and direct than we are. We'll just spin around and turn on wheels uh, and so on and not know what we're doing and how we're going to get there. He knows the perfect path for us. So we just can sit back and relax and just follow and do what he directs to do. It's so much easier than trying to be God, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, if you even look at someone like like Bob Buford's a perfect example. Uh, when Peter suggested write the book halftime, he wrote the book halftime, but it was God's plan to use that book all over the world. He had no idea. And now it's sold over a million copies. So once you inject the Holy Spirit into it and it's supercharged, it just takes off. Absolutely. So, Dean, let me ask you this. What are some (laughs) lessons that you have learned, particularly since you've been at halftime? I'm going to ask you about that first. What lessons have you learned there? Well, I've learned a lot of lessons. I I, I was, uh, as a younger man, uh, again, as I said earlier, it was all about me. And I learned from Bob, from halftime and from others that humility really does matter. Integrity is incredibly important. Uh, I've learned through halftime that we all have strengths. We all have gifts, spiritual gifts. We all have passions and we all have an assignment. It's up to us individually to try to figure out what is that assignment. I believe that in maybe I'm a little biased, but I believe that's done in a cohort and there needs to be structure around doing that. And it's, it's really transformation over time. That's what I've learned that, that you can be transformed over time. If I look at Dean Nawalny back in 2000, 2001, and I look at Dean Nawalny in 2021 or 22, the big difference is that I feel like I've humbled myself to say, Lord, everything I have is yours. So through halftime, I just really did learn that the gifting and the talents and the spiritual gifts and the resources, the, the, the money and everything else, it's all the Lord's. It's not mine. I'm, I'm a steward. I'm a manager of his resources. Yes. And you would know more about that than most people coming from the financial services realm, <laughs> knowing what it means to be a steward over your life and over the resources that God has given you. So I'm going to jump there for a second, since we're just talking about that. You spent a lot of years in some pretty high-level roles in the financial services industry. Talk to us a little bit about that journey. What kinds of jobs did you have? And what did you learn there, secondly? And then we'll, we'll go a little bit beyond that. So tell us about the kind of jobs and what you learned back then. Sure. I started in 1987 as a financial advisor with Merrill Lynch. So I managed individuals' money at that point. And they invited me to go into the management development program, which I did, and became a manager initially out in Carmel, California, and then I moved to the Midwest. And from there, moved on to a few other firms. But as I went into into management, one of the things that I realized is that I did have special skills in certain areas, but I didn't have skills in all the areas. And what I really needed to understand quickly, I, I used to be, uh, you know, they used to make fun of me, Dean, you're a master delegator. Well, not really. Uh, maybe I do delegate quite a bit, but I delegate to folks who are much smarter than me. So I learned from a very early stage in my career that I needed to put folks around me who were smarter than me that had expertise and gifting that I didn't have. So as I began to manage an individual office, which I I did in Sugarland, Texas. That was the first office that I that I managed with uh, at the time with Payne Weber, um, and then moved to bigger offices in Chicago, and then oversaw the the regional office in Chicago. I just realized the bigger things got the more important it was to have experts around me who made me look good. Quite honestly, so there's surely something I learned along the way. 
That's an important leadership lesson because I think as people are growing and scaling in their business, quickly you discover you can't do everything yourself, nor are you equipped to do everything yourself. And I think about the whole concept of the body of Christ. You have the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, and somebody in your organization is designated to be the ears. And so if you're trying to be the ear and you can't hear, that's that's not a good deal. So I think it's great what you're saying. Delegate to those who have the expertise, to those who may be smarter than you in certain spheres, you know, in terms of their gifting and their strengths and their talents. And the whole organization really is going to be lifted as a result when you're delegating to the right people. So I think that's an important leadership lesson, no matter where you learn it from. I was just going to say that it, it's an ego thing too, right? It, you have to set your ego aside and say, hey, there's others who are better at this than, than I am. And, uh, and I'd love to say that I'm really good at that. I've learned over the years to do that a little bit better. But if you can set your ego aside and, and, and be humble and just understand that you're not great in every single area, no one is, you're going to be a much better leader, in my opinion. Absolutely. That is so true. And it, it sort of ties back the thread that we were talking about earlier about humility, because it does take humility to recognize that you can't do everything yourself, that you really do need partners and team members around you in order to be most successful. So yeah, thank you for adding that part in as well. But let's go back a little further. Back to your early background in life. How did you grow up and what were the influences in your life back then? As you look back down, you can see how they were important to your journey and where you are today. I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Uh, we didn't have much, but we had enough. But one of the things that I learned at a young age, and, and I have a fantastic relationship with my parents. It has nothing to do with them. My dad's my best friend. But one of the things that, that we focused on quite a bit was what others had. So we all look at what they have, look at how much money they have, look at the house, look at the cars, look, look at that. So as a young kid, that was ingrained into me. No fault of their own. They weren't trying to do that. But, but as a young kid, you start hearing that. And then as you grow up, it's, well, I want to be those folks. I want to be those. I want to have the cars. I want to be the Ericsons down the block with the big house. So at a young age, I made a decision that happiness is all about making money and having nice things. Ooh. And we all know, listening to this podcast, that that's not true. It, but for me at a young age, it, it was a learning that I had to ultimately find out on my own. And that's what happened with me. I, I went down this path of let's accumulate things, let's buy things, let's make as much money as we can. I'm going to be really happy. And then one day I, I'm standing on the 40th floor of the Mercantile Exchange Building, looking out over my empire, screaming, God, there has to be more to life than this. What I quickly realized was I thought back to my childhood and really the important piece that I learned is that success and happiness and joy is all about serving others. It's looking outward, not inward. And that took me a long time to get to that point. I was in my 30s when I finally realized that there has to be more to life than this and I have to start looking at others and serving others. Well, good. You actually discovered it earlier in life than many people do. So that means you've reached a level of financial success and success according to the metrics of the world system, so to speak. And you were able then to sort of look out the window and say, okay, God, what else is there? So as you were asking that question and you were looking out the window and looking over your empire and all of that, how did you move from that place to the journey of serving others, because that's a process too. You don't just get there overnight. You, you had a vision in childhood that led you to the financial success. So what made the difference in moving from that level of financial success to then serving others and moving into greater significance? What I realized was when I got to that point that I was so unhappy and there was something missing. There was, as I'd like to say, a hole in my heart. This this season I refer to as my smoldering discontent season, This uh, the years from 2000 to 2006. 
And as I sat there in my office saying, God, there has to be more to life than this. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the Lord say, Dean, it's time to simplify your life. I have other plans for you. And at that point, I started to really think through, why am I as unhappy as I am? Why? What's missing? And so I wanted to make sure to identify that and, and, and get some help with that. So what happened is two weeks later, <laughs> ironically, I got a call from my boss, public company, got a call from my boss and he said, hey, would you like to do a book study? I said, sure. I said, what's the book called? He said, Halftime. I said, oh yeah, I read that. And I heard that guy get interviewed. And he said, why don't you come in and we'll do a book study, which we ended up doing. So what happened through the book study, which we actually called the halftime huddle, is we got together every other week and answered questions at the end of each chapter. And it became very evident to me what that hole in my heart actually was. And that was this idea of Jesus saying, we are here to serve. It's better to give than to receive. And I started to just have some of that go through my mind. I, I grew up Catholic, which was great. I didn't have much faith at that point in 2000, 2006. I was a baby Christian at that point. But I started to realize as I went through the halftime huddle process that serving others was going to bring me that happiness. So it was over time. It wasn't just overnight. But it was over time. You know, it's so interesting. I'm hearing several elements. There was the period of doing what you thought would bring the happiness then having a chance to reflect on it and feel some of the discontent in that, and then listening and having God issue a call to you, and also sort of a, a challenge in saying, I've got plans for you. There's something I want you to do. So he's preparing your mind, telling you that, and then simultaneously sending someone who's going to be in a process with you, like the halftime huddle, to prepare you for what God said he had plans for you to do. I think that's pretty significant because that's really how God does work with most of us. There's some sense in which he's getting our attention and then also sending people our way, you know, who can make a difference, you know, on our journey. That's right. Now, I think, I think we have to be looking for those opportunities also friend of mine, I, I asked one day, what do you do for your daily devotional? He said, what I do for my daily devotionals, I say, Jesus, I'm available. Guide me, fill me with your spirit. Help me to do your work, your way all day. And he said, then I just wait for opportunities and look for opportunities. And uh, I've started to do that. And it's just amazing the opportunities that are presented, you know, how they come about. There's no question. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. there's an element of expectation waiting for God to move and not moving until he does and moving where he sends and where he leads. Yeah, that's absolutely a powerful piece of it. You know, Dean, you said at one time that you and your wife, I read this in the bio, that you and your wife started going to Africa. What prompted you to start going to Africa and you got concerned about what was happening to widows and orphans over there and so on. Why Africa as opposed to any other place? It could be a corner of the United States. It could be another country. So tell us a little bit about how you got sort of the passion for Africa and in particular, South Africa. Sure. Um, at that time, when I had this 40th floor office experience, when I say, God, there has to be more to life than this. Soon after that, I went to church and our pastor was discussing how he was recently in Africa and he was serving uh, folks in, in Africa that uh, food and, and broad supplies and other things. So I reached out to the church and I just said, boy, I, I would love to do that. I would just love to go over there and go on a trip. So it just so happened that I ended up going to Africa because that's where they were going. And uh, I spent 10 days there, which was just a, a life changing for me, coming from the cushy, you know, lifestyle and, and the success in, in downtown Chicago and all of that to going to really some very impoverished areas of Africa. And my heart just broke for those folks. So that that's how it started, Dr. Karen. I, it, it wasn't that I picked Africa. I think God picked it for me. And, uh, and that's where we went. So we went all around South Africa. 
And right after that, when I, when I came back, uh, my wife could see that something really happened to me as I was there. And she ended up going to South Africa, to Zambia right after that. And that was kind of the beginning of us making some pretty significant changes in our life. That's interesting. So it was kind of an opportunity that was in your realm and sphere because of your church. And that's how you got exposed. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, the concept of experiencing God that the Blackabees have written about in their book. Sure. And it's sort of the notion of work where God is working. <laughs> it's kind of like, right. you know, what I hear you talking mm -hmm. about in, in sharing that story. So that's pretty powerful, actually. You've had a lot of experiences. You've been leading in a ministry now that's designed to resource the marketplace ministry leaders. You also were leading in the financial services industries. So you've seen a lot of leadership and you've talked a bit about some of the aspects that are important, like the delegation piece. That was a very important kind of a tip or tool along the way. What else would you say makes someone a great leader? Well, I would say the number one thing is really integrity uh, and trust you want to follow a leader that you trust who you know cares and loves you and really cares about you as an individual just as much as that that leader cares about the business itself uh, i received one of the best compliments i've ever received uh, way back in 1997 uh, as i was leaving the Payne weber office in sugarland texas one of the brokers came up to me and he said dean i've never had a leader who truly cared about me and my family like you have. So I think it's that the, the leadership is that you will take the mountain for that person who you know really does care about you, really authentically cares about you and your family and your well-being and what's best for you. And I always, in, in the financial services industry, the way managers would get paid is if you kept the revenue which was the brokers in the office, if you kept those folks in the office. And my approach all the time was, what is best for you and for your family? It was a completely different way of thinking about it. Because at the end of the day, they knew I really did care about them, which actually caused more people to want to work with me. Right? So I think the integrity, the trust, the genuineness of saying, hey, I do really care about you. How can I serve you? What do you need from me? How can I make you better? Versus, you know, pounding the table, hey, we need more sales, we need more sales. You know, there's a, there's a time for that also, but there's a balance. You know, I think what I'm hearing in this thread is that later, when you came to the notion of serving others, you were already serving people in your financial services job too. You just were taking it to a bigger and a deeper level. So God was already putting that on your heart in terms of caring for the people and the families that you were working with. And I think people, they underrate the importance of this. I'm also very aware of it as a consultant, because when I think about my clients, I think one of the points of differentiation is that they know I care about them. I love them and I care as much about their success and sometimes more than they do because they don't yet sometimes have the confidence or the vision about it. But I can see, I'm looking at them. I see the gifts. I see what God is doing with them. And not everybody approaches you know, their work in that way. I think it's quite powerful because it means the caring also, it causes me to pull on the gifts that God has given me in order to help them as well and inspires them to bring out what God has put in them. Sure. And, and when, when you do that, right, uh, they will step up and do anything for you. And I, I remember vividly a conversation with one of my uh, employees. He said, you know, Dean, when I ask someone, you know, how are they doing? I'm really just saying it. I don't really care. But he said, when you ask it, you really care. And he goes, it's really unique. He goes, you really do care about me and my wife and my kids. So, hey, I have a long ways to go on, on that. But I do, you can tell when somebody truly cares. You can tell how they react, how they interact with you. So, yeah, there's a deeper level of connection that occurs. Sure. And they recognize it's not just the rote, how are you? And let's move on to the next thing. That's you know, right. Kind of a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, I think sometimes there are people who are new executives or there are individuals who are aspiring to executive leadership and they're not quite there yet. They're on the pathway. They're along the way. So to, let's say, that next generation that's coming behind, what would you say for those young leaders? What advice would you give them? Yeah, um, I would say identify someone you want to be and then follow that person and spend a lot of time with that person. One of my managers way back in the beginning of my career said, Dean, do you want to be a $200,000 producer or do you want to be a million dollar producer? And I said, well, I want to be a million dollar producer. He said, then why are you hanging with all the $200,000 producers? So if you want to get to a certain level and you just be starting your career, you need to have a mentor who, as I like to say, has paid the dumb tax. You can sit down with that mentor, the man or woman who's in that role, and just talk to the person and, and pick their brain. Let them guide you. Let them give you suggestions on how to, to get to that next level. So I think that's critically important. And I think, too, Dr. Karen, as we mentioned earlier, it, you really need to set your pride aside and your ego aside and say, okay, how can I get folks around me who are smarter than me? How can I build the best team around me? And don't feel threatened. Don't be concerned because they're going to make you better if you have the best team around you. So those would be my two words of advice. You know, I hear a couple things in that. And one is the whole notion of continuous learning. If you're going to be successful, you have to be willing to step into bigger shoes, so to speak, Put yourself around the people who are where you are going because they've been on the road, know how to get there. And right. as you said, have already paid the dumb tax. So you can save some time <laughs> and, and some headache sure. learning from those individuals. I think about Jesus. I think about the whole notion of discipleship. I think about the notion of apprenticeship, mentoring, and so on. His close-in disciples, that's exactly what they did. They spent that time with him so that there was a transfer just in doing life together. And so you're saying be intentional and strategic about who you're spending the time with so that it really is value added for where you're going. And then secondly, you know, as far as your own organization, again, building out all of the talent and smarts you need, including people smarter than yourself, and not be afraid to add people smarter than yourself to the team, because that's how everyone is going to move forward is by doing that. Those are two really smart ideas. <laughs> so. I appreciate that. I Well, we even think of Jesus. Jesus spent time, quiet time, solitude time with the Father. So it's important to identify that person that you want to spend time with. I When I was a young financial advisor out in Carmel, California, and I was 23 years old. I used to go to lunch with a gentleman who was 70. I just would pick his brain. I would listen to him. I would just ask him simple questions about, tell me you know, what I should know, what mistakes have you made that I can learn from? And it was very valuable. That's phenomenal. So there's wisdom all around us. We just have to access it, tap into it, see the value of the elders who are in our midst, you know, they have a lot of wisdom to share with us as well. Dr. You know, Karen, if I could yeah. just add one, one last please. thing to, to that, please. It's just a lot of new leaders, I believe are apprehensive about asking someone to be their mentor. And my encouragement to the, the younger leaders is folks who are older, who have been through it, love to mentor. And they love to share their experiences. So don't be concerned or afraid to make the ask. If they say no, they say no, but it would be surprising. And a lot of times those who are asking to be mentored, they see something in you that you can relate to as an older person. When you look back at them, like I'm thinking of someone in my life right now who I'm mentoring and she's me like 40 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And the point being that there's a journey that I've been on. It's like, what would I tell my younger self? What someone to have said to me that I can now say to this younger person who's on a path and I could get excited and enthused, you know, about where they're going and what's happening with them. So, so yeah, when you, we have the right match, the person actually will be excited. (laughs) So, 
Yeah, I, I did a, a talk at a university that I'll leave unnamed at this point. But I, when I spoke to the, the business students, the first question I asked is, are you approaching your career because you're passionate about it? Or is it because your parents or someone said, this is a good idea for you? Are you personally passionate? Because if you're not passionate about it, it won't last. I said, the second thing, if you're passionate about it, who's your mentor? And I was surprised. I would say maybe 10% raised their hands that I have a mentor. I said, well, then how are you going to get to the next level or learn if you don't have a mentor who's already been there? So I think it's critically important. I'm so glad you brought up the passionate part, too, because I find that in today's world, even more than in the past, I see a lot of people making decisions about what career they want to go into, having nothing to do with their interests, their passions, or even their giftings. They're just looking and say, oh, this is a career where I can make money. However, if you are gifted for it, you don't have passion in it, you're probably not going to make money too much doing it because you're not going to be good at it. Or it's the joy that you've been talking about will certainly be missing. Well, Gallup did a poll, and it was quite interesting. Gallup did a poll, and only 20% of it, of folks who, who are out in the workforce, say they're doing something that really matters and has significance. So 80% are just doing it to get the paycheck. And that's very wearing and tiring. And they, there's another uh, uh, survey that was done. I forgot the name of the organization, but it was 50% of those ages 50 to 60 years old would have changed careers if they, you know, thinking back, they would have changed careers to do something that had more impact in their life versus just doing what they were doing. So I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people just work to make the paycheck. That's challenging. And then they just can't wait till retirement day. (laughs) They're not not really seeing, you know, sort of like the the joy in the service that they're doing because it's been drudgery for so many years in that sense. And that's unfortunate. And that's one of the reasons I'm really passionate about the workplace, because I think that God's people in the workplace can really make a difference because the right people in that workplace not only do they have joy, but they're also spreading joy to others. And that's valuable as you're adding value. (laughs) Well, I think that you bring up such an interesting point Uh, in the book, halftime, for instance, there's this thought that you have to leave the marketplace and go into the ministry because that's what Bob Buford did. Now I did that, but your ministry is right in front of you. God has given you that opportunity wherever you're at. If it's in a hospital, if it's in a workplace, wherever it may be, that's the ministry and it's right in front of you. I had a situation at halftime, gentleman came and he was one of the most miserable people I've run across in, in years. And I asked him, why are you so unhappy? And he said, I thought you had to become like Mother Teresa and give everything up, all the things you loved in order to serve and go into ministry. And 60 to 70 percent of folks who actually go through our programs stay right where they're at in the marketplace that's the ministry so this gentleman went back into the financial services industry and is flourishing and made his he has clients a thousand clients or so and that's that's his ministry I am so glad you brought that point up because that's been on my heart and mind for a long time anyway. That's why I do the work that I'm doing is because I believe that those who are called to the marketplace are in ministry. Absolutely. And to the extent that they see it that way and recognize that God has given them gifts to be used there for the benefit of other people. I mean, if everybody was in the church, who would be in the in the marketplace? <laughs> yeah. God it would be a light in the marketplace. Yeah, God needs people everywhere. By sharing that, you reminded me of something else. I know that halftime has been going through a transition of sorts, and you've come to some new insights and realizations as an organization. So tell us a little bit about what's the new insight and new learning that halftime even has from, let's say, in comparison to the Bob Buford days. Well, I think halftime is going through halftime. <laughs> I love that. So, That's great. <laughs> no, I think what, what what's interesting uh, is that the younger generation, this idea of going from success to significance, is 1990s ish. It's not today. This younger generation, okay, I want to be successful and significant. 
I want to make a difference now. And when you think of calling it halftime, most people think, well, halftime means that you're 50 to 55 years old. And the reality is halftime is a season in life. It, we've had folks as young as 27 and as old as 83. So what, what we're learning is that it's a much wider breadth of age. It's a season of life. It's not an age. That's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, what I said earlier, and that is they want to be, the younger generation wants to be successful and significant right away. They want to make an impact. And I would just say that halftime used to be probably uh, 80, 20 men to women. It's now 50, 50, 60, 40 men to women. So a lot more women are participating in halftime, which is fabulous. We're starting something new called Halftime for Women, which has been really, really great. The most important learning, though, is it is a lifelong journey, and it's not just a moment in time. So halftime years ago, the Bob Buford days, which was fantastic, that's the program I went through, was a two-day event that you came to, and, and we went through your gifting and your passions and your strengths, and it was a good starting point. But what we found out is transformation happens over time with others and really you need a, a coach to help you so we everyone now who goes through halftime has a coach for a year and the program is a minimum of a year but really it's much longer than that so they go through the program and then they go into the halftime alumni program so it's a journey it's a lifelong journey yeah that's exactly right i mean that is the best way to operate <laughs> to think mm -hmm. about it as a journey and you need different things along the way of the journey. It's like saying, I'm going to eat food once and that's it. I never have to eat again. <laughs> that mm -hmm. you wouldn't last very long <laughs> in the that's world right. like that. Yeah. So Dean, in your case, how do you personally want to be remembered? What is the legacy that's important to you to create and leave um, behind? My legacy is I want to make sure that I have been available to whatever God wants me to be available for. So as I look back at my legacy, we, we, we do an exercise called the 80th birthday party. And uh, just really quick side note, the 80th birthday party is you're, you're at your 80th birthday. And you 200 of your closest friends uh, are there and they walk up to the microphone and there's one question. And that is, what impact has Dean had on humanity and society? What would you, how would you answer that? And you try to answer that question today. If I answered that in 2006 or seven, I would, they would have said, well, he hasn't done a whole lot for society. He's done a lot for himself. My life, I want to just make sure that I'm always available. Like I said earlier, Jesus, I'm available. Let me do your work your way all day. And I don't want to look back with regrets where I wasn't available in a time that Jesus really wanted me to be available. So the main thing I'm trying to say here is the whole idea of surrender and being in, in God's sweet spot and making sure that I try to stay in that, which is a daily process of praying through that. Lord, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do as I go through this day and as I go forward? So I think if uh, at the end of my life, if someone stood up and said, you know what, that Nawalny guy, he tried to stay in his Ephesians 2.10 calling in God's sweet spot to the best of his abilities. That's it for me. Well, that's powerful in and of itself. So thank you for well, sharing. I'm working on it. I'm working on <laughs> it. You're, you're, you're living it out. You're living it out day by day. I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah. Exactly. So, Dean, I know you've written the book, Trade Up, How to Go from Just Making Money to Making a Difference. And we've been talking about some of the phenomena related to that all along. Why did you write that book? And if people read it, how will they be benefited by reading your book? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I wrote the book just 20 years after halftime started to just say, hey, first of all, here, here's the journey that I've been on. Because I had so many people come up to me <laughs> from my old life and say, man, you just got to tell me what happened. How do, you, how do you go from all of this 
to now making 80, you know, 20% of what you used to and giving up all the success. And there was, there was this uh, thought of what happened to him? You know, why, why did you do this? And I even had folks say to me, I, we don't care about your life story here, where you grew up and all that. How did you make that transition? Like, how did you make that decision? So I wrote the book, Dr. Karen. First of all, I do share my story at the beginning and talk through the good, bad, and ugly of Dean Nawalny, but how Dean Nawalny ultimately got to that 40th floor experience where he said, God, there has to be more to life than this. And then the second half, as you mentioned, it, it, it's been the, the things that we have learned that uh, we maybe didn't know in 1998, but we, we knew in 2017, 2018. So for those who are just thinking through this idea of, you know, I really do want to make sure that I finish well. I want to make sure that I'm living a life of impact. It's a great starting spot to read trade up. Even if you don't read through the first half of my story and you get to the second half, you can, there's exercises and things you can do in there that'll help you. That's wonderful. So you actually have written a book in such a way that a person can really reflect on their own journey, and they also can get some insights from reading about your journey as well. I think that's highly valuable. In a sense, you're through the book, you're being one of those mentors, you know, that we were mm. talking about for someone who wants to be at a similar place in their own life at some point. So thank you for writing the book. Thank you for okay. sharing it. And people can get the book in a lot of different places. Obviously, they can go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ChristianBook.com. There are a lot of different places you can get it. We'll put that in the show notes as well. And again, it's called Trade Up, How to Go from Just Making Money to Making a Difference. So, Dean, how can people get in touch with Halftime or you? What's the best route? Sure, the best route to get a hold of Halftime is going to HalftimeInstitute.org. That's the website, halftimeinstitute.org. You feel free to email me. It's dean.nawalny at halftime.org. Dean.nawalny at halftime.org. So, and uh, I would love to get your emails and do anything I can for you. So, Dean, because Nawalny is an unusual name, please spell that. <laughs> wow. I was going to congratulate you at the beginning because most aren't able to pronounce it. And you did it fantastic. Sure. The, the name is spelled N I E. W-O-L-N-Y. So dean.n-i-e-w-o-l-n-y at halftime.org. Thank you for giving voice to that. Of course, I'm going to show notes, but not everybody's going to read those. So those yeah. are just hearing from an auditory perspective, they at least know what to look up. <laughs> it's not yeah. like saying Smith. <laughs> and even that has variations. But anyway. <laughs> So, Dean, what additional and final words of wisdom do you want to leave for my audience of executive business leaders? Hmm. I would say I tried to do this, and I'm still working at it, but my encouragement would be to every day when you wake up, understand you're going into ministry. You are going to work. You're going to drive revenue. You're going to drive the bottom line but it is truly a ministry. You're impacting human beings day in and day out. And based on how you treat them is going to be really important. So I think when you look at the business as a leader through the lens of ministry versus the lens of just purely business, you approach things much differently. And quite honestly, I think when you approach it through ministry, there's just so much more joy of getting up and going to work. I know that happened for me. And I just made a point before I transitioned over to halftime, I would go around and talk to every single individual and just ask them, is there anything I can do for you? And how can I serve you? And even that very simple question, it might open up a conversation. Someone might be going through a divorce, lost a child, something going on in their life. It's a ministry. You know, that's really an important summary theme of everything we've been talking about. It's not either or. You can have success and significance. You can be in ministry and be at work. It's a both and. And I think that's really powerful. 
So thank you so much, Dean, for being with me today and for taking this journey on the voice of leadership and Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership with me. I appreciate your insights. I appreciate you spending the time. Oh, Dr. Karen, my pleasure. Thank you. So to my audience out there, I want to summarize just a few items that Dean shared with us today, and it'll be just a few. He, he dropped so many golden nuggets, you may have to go back and listen to it twice. But a few things I want to just highlight that stood out to me is the whole notion that our growth and development is a transformation over time. And as we take the journey of transformation over time, it's important to have mentors in our lives and mentors, people who have already achieved what we want to achieve. So if you want to be amongst the eagles in life, you don't want to be hanging out with the turkeys. You want to be with the eagles so you can learn what it takes to really soar and to take off. I also heard that Getting to a place of success and significance means that it's about more than just yourself. There's got to be that commitment to really serve others and to make a difference, to operate every day in integrity, to operate every day with a sense of trust, using your strengths, using your gifts, and doing so in humility because you bring other people who are even smarter than you and more gifted than you around you so that together you create the enterprise, you create the impact that you really can create. So I want to say to all of you out there is be thinking about how you can delegate better to the smart people, be thinking about how you can continue to grow and develop every day yourself so that you remain vibrant and so that you wake up and say to God, Lord, I'm available to you. Today, I'm surrendered to your purpose. That's what I heard Dean say today. I want to just close our time out with the scripture that he's been referencing during this segment, because it's a scripture that's meaningful to have time and to him. And I think that it's useful for today. That's Ephesians 2 and 10, which says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.